What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. With the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. What is up folks? Welcome to episode 114 of the Emulsion Podcast. Damn, I missed this. This is a uh, I don't know. It feels it feels like it's been ages. I'm I'm really really happy to be back in the studio. It's crazy to have Joe back behind the camera shooting a podcast episode. He's back in Seattle. I feel like that one update vlog that I shot and posted on the channel and it's on YouTube was enough ranting and raving about my life right now. The TLDR is that it's crazier than ever. I think back to the days when my biggest stressor in my life was like, is the fish company going to drop off the fish today? Or like my prep list is like extra huge today. Those are the glory days, but that really taught me how to prioritize, and it taught me a lot about myself and how I like to work, but who am I kidding? It's enough about me. Let's talk about you, but before that, let's talk about today's beverage. This is a bit of a throwback, and I think it's because of the coronavirus nonsense that's happening in Seattle right now. It's not nonsense, but there is a little bit of uh, hysteria happening. So I went to go buy just standard LaCroix, and the only one that was available was like the weird uh, mashup flavors. So this is a cherry lime uh, curate LaCroix. haven't drank this for a while. I am going to jump on Instagram live. I think that's going to be fun. Um, the Patreon shout out this time this is like a weird time for Patreon. I'm definitely feeling the one step back to take two steps forward on Patreon, and that effect kind of influences how I'm feeling about Patreon. Was it a good decision? Was it not? I've really been dropping the ball in the live streams. Uh, for those of you that have tried to tune in to uh, the March one or the February one, again, I'm. it was just an abysmal failure. YouTube literally said we weren't giving enough data to the live stream platform, which is like... We were using a potato quality camera, uh, and that was like uber frustrating. So thank goodness Joe is back in town. So we did film that. So everybody that is on Patreon, um, this is a quickie pitch for you. If you want to join the Patreon fam, everybody gets access to those live streams after they get recorded. The live stream uh, element of it is more to be like a Q&A. That's when Q&A will happen. Uh, I'm going to share more at the end of this episode on what you can expect for next month's uh, live stream. The video that I will be premiering is me sharing my thoughts on creativity and the creative process and being a practical creative and doing things like R&D and all of that stuff. So if that makes your ears perk up a little bit, that is only going to be available to Patreon supporters, such as here come the shoutouts. Patrick S., Edwin S., uh, Javian M., Christopher X., and Annette B. Thank you folks so much for joining, for supporting, for being patient while we figure all of these perks and such out. Uh, it's going to get rip rolling, and then I'm really going to over-deliver there. So in the meantime, thank you. Uh, I guess the last thing on the update side of things, I have been reaching out, uh, I have been reached out to by a few brands to do ad reads on this show, which means one of two things. One, I will have to redo the intro because that would be pretty hypocritical of me, uh, if the intro that rolls goes into me reading an ad, but 
I mean, if it's a brand that I like and I enjoy using and I support and they feel likewise, I would love to hook you folks up with whatever offer they want to kind of have me pitch. If you're super anti-ad on this show, the best thing you can do is make sure you're supported on Patreon. I mean, I don't need a lot. Uh, this was never designed to make money. It was designed to help you stay informed and get involved in a conversation and make some peers in the industry. So I would rather say it now than spring it on you after a, almost 150 ad-free episodes. That was kind of a crazy uh, piece of statistics. Um, when I went into like my Simplecast dashboard, it said I had 129 episodes. That's a lot. It's pretty cool. So the first story that I want to cover uh, is about this new announcement with a bunch of new features from the team over at Talk. So for those of you that aren't aware, Grant Ackett's and Nick Kakonis were frustrated with POS systems and booking software for their restaurants in Chicago. So being the savvy guys that they are, they built their own. And in typical kind of scratch your own itch fashion, they realize that they aren't the only ones with those kinds of problems. So Talk has been growing pretty rapidly over the past, I would say, two to three years. They've got French Laundry, Manresa. Single Thread, Blue Hill, uh, 11 Madison Park, Adamix, tons of amazing restaurants on that platform. They've also opened it up to uh, places like wineries, and they actually launched a event-specific portal that, for full transparency, we use at Voyager's Table. Uh, but this next product is less of a service to restaurants, and it's more of a play to bring value to their users, and it's called Talk Time. So yes, this is all about the guest experience. So I'm quoting now from this press release. Quote, talk time features will include the wish list, which has a little TM on it, so you can't use the word wish list, instant book, which also has a TM on it, trademark, and a brand new diner profile with dining history, maps, and personalized recommendations, all created to make your life more delicious. So... I'm quoting a little bit more from this press release here. Quote, why do booking systems allow diners to filter from thousands of restaurants in any city by cuisine, price, or location only to allow them to click on a restaurant and find that, quote, there is nothing available within two hours of your requested time, end quote. How is that a good experience? Quote, let's suppose you travel to New York often and dine out frequently there. Your best friend texts you asking for recommendations. Why can't you easily keep track of and share your dining history, private reviews, and favorite discoveries with the click of a button? Now you can with culinary collections, end quote. And you can kind of see where this going, where initially their plan, like their roadmap was to get a bunch of restaurants on board. And now they're pivoting, not pivoting, but adding more robust features so that you and I, as people that go out to eat at restaurants, maybe we aren't the people running the reservations for these places, can stand to benefit and actually like we would rather book through talk than, you know, an open table or a resi or something like that. And there's a bunch of other, you know, kind of marketing fluff in here, but some of the features that might be more practical for people like us is, quote, dietary restrictions or allergies can be allergies can be easily noted. Dining, basi dining basics like booth versus table, still versus sparkling water, and coffee versus tea, among many others, can be set once and will be automatically shared with restaurants every time you dine. And that might get a little, uh, a couple people like freaked out about privacy. Uh, it does say, quote, but most importantly, talk will not publish your ratings or opinions ever. Restaurant ratings should serve you, the diner, to remember what you liked and what you did not like or let a restaurant know directly that an evening was magical or needed improvement. The conflict of interest inherently in Yelp, OpenTable, and other sites that both publish reviews and sell bookings will not exist, end quote. So you can't necessarily become like, what do they call it? It's like a Yelp elite member or a local guide, I think is what uh, Google Maps calls it. And then they'll give you like certain uh, uh, perks and uh, 
let other people know that you are an authority in that area of the world. If you're a local in Austin and you constantly publish your reviews on that place, they will, uh, you know, kind of let the public know about that. And Talk has something similar, quote, there are playful badges to earn, pitmaster, cocktail aficionado, star collector, and dozens of others, and new experiences to discover, create culinary lists to share with your friends, and many more innovative features that are coming in the near future. Uh, It does add an element of what they're calling culinary quizzes, which I've played around with, you know, like pitching to uh, pop-up guests in the past. It's a little bit tricky because then it's like, where do we go from here? Are you basically boxing yourself in as a guest to get a guaranteed experience based on your answers to this culinary quiz? Uh, It says, quote, are you an adventurous diner or more cautious? Cocktails, wine, or non-alcoholic beverages, locavore, or culinary traveler? As you take a moment to release out, talk time will get to know your tastes and make more informed, tasteful suggestions. So as most of this kind of gets wrapped up into a package, they want this to be what they're calling a digital concierge, quote, a culinary membership to make your life more delicious. And I think the only other thing about this press release before I give any sort of opinion is this uh, wish list function, Um, quote, every talk member will be allowed two concurrent wishes, but an unlimited number overall. Ours is a fair genie and works to give every member access to their culinary dreams. We'll also notify you if a particular wish list is very popular so Talk Time can offer alternative suggestions that are equally magical. So this is for like, um, it gives you the example. Your 10th anniversary is coming up in May, but the restaurant of your partner's dreams is currently booking until March. You're in a bind because you also got to book hotels, airfare, and vacation time at work ASAP. Until talk time, you had little choice but to call, email, and beg the restaurant for an early booking, or wait until they open the month of May window, hoping to get lucky enough to grab a table. A few minutes late, and now you're on the wait list. Purgatory. Talk Time's wish list allows you to make a booking wish, noting the time, day, party size you desire, or even a range of days. The millisecond bookings become available, Talk Time will automatically hold a table for you for 24 hours and send you an email notification. So basically, they're they're marketing access, right? They're offering access as a perk to people that sign up for this service, which for, I mean, like, I think I put it down in here. Um I mean, this is about as close as I could have gotten to that software play that I mentioned slash suggested a few episodes back. I think that was definitely more uh, on the casual end of things. This is absolutely a stab at appeasing the whims of the traveling diners, the ones who frequent 11 Madison Park every other month, who have their favorite table at Manresa, who get greeted with their favorite beverage when they sit down at Alinea, because ultimately, those are the ones who will tell their friends about having an amazing experience with a concierge like this. The challenge I think you face with coming out with a watered-down version on day one, if this was kind of like a play to get the everyman to sign up for this kind of a service, is that there isn't a defined audience in mind, and that you don't really know what you're making this product for. I mean, like, personally, I can think of, like, 10 people in my brain right now who would jump on something like Talk Time, people who... uh, who say that they're constantly on a wait list for Austria Francescana or they're dying to go to Sushi Saito in Tokyo, right? And they think Yelp is too basic, but Amex doesn't really encourage you to share or provide any continuity through them making resos for you, right? And I think with a lot of these restaurants spending hundreds of hours Googling guests and incentivizing them to just willingly give up this information allows places that, like, the, the places that do the legwork to go above and beyond if they Google you and they're going to reward that research with some hospitality. This kind of comes full circle, 
right? And I'm stoked to see this get announced. I'll probably be creating a profile on Talk Time. I do just have an account for when I book reservations. And, you know, this is the descent into uh, them being my one and only place to go book cool places. Um, it's debatable kind of which badges I'll be going for. Uh, but yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Do you have thoughts on Talk Time? Would your workplace, like the place that you work, would your guests, do you think, benefit from a service like this? Would you folks as... Um, you know, if you work at a place that does a counter-style tasting menu, would you like to have, like, profiles of guests just pop up in your POS system instead of, like, constantly having someone in front of house Google them? Um, do you think it's too much? Let me know down low in the comments or tweet at me because that's uh, why we're all here. Moving on, uh, staying more or less on the Alinea train, Chris Popel, who is a food writer out of the UK, posted a screenshot from Alinea's talk page, and he quoted... And this is his tweet, quote, this is a new one. Alinea literally does not let you book a table for three. If there are three of you, you'll need to pay for four. You can then even opt to have the fourth meal served to an empty seat. And then obviously it follows with the screenshot from their talk page. So I think it says there's, there was a, I mean, from the community and from his followers, there were a lot of people that, I mean, this didn't go viral. This was an 150,000 uh, liked tweet, but I think a lot of people either skimmed by this or scoffed at it on Twitter, and with as much as I can on this show, I prefer to dig a little bit more and give you more than just kind of the 280 characters, so I'm quoting Nick Kokonis now because someone did, like, at him in the replies, and then he responded quite savvily, I would argue, as he does. He says, quote, this is not remotely new. We book two, four, or six people. If someone chooses to book for four and only shows up with three, that's up to them. We can't control that, end quote. And then another uh, response he gave was, quote, no, no, uh, he says, quote, no shows are not refunded. If you give us 48 hours notice, we refund, but all bookings are two, four, or six. If we didn't do this, we'd have to raise prices by 8%. This is the lesser of two evils, and we rarely get any complaints. We do allow singles by email backside. And then uh, someone asks a question, and he answers by saying, quote, um, the answer is that we had 99.2% occupancy in Q4 of 2019. The, .08, the, the 0.8 was due to unique exceptions and 0.3% no-show rate. Exceptions tend to be visiting chefs slash industry. So... My opinion overall here, I think it's easy for the person who compares their local expensive Italian restaurant to Alinea to kind of come out with some backlash on Twitter here. It's very weird to see a restaurant move forward with a policy like this when you're used to places being pretty lackadaisical with guest count, right? You go to a 250-seat bistro and you say you were three, now you're five. Unless it's like 7 p.m. on a Saturday night, chances are you're probably going to be able to get another table because that's just like supply and demand, right? I think that's where the issue issue is here, um, that same bistro might be incredibly in flux with their cash flow, right? Because they're able to be so, eh, whatever, on their seats, they're built to kind of ebb and expand depending on the day. But when you have a spot like Alinea where they're flaunting 99.2% occupancy rate at any point in time, the game changes. And I think that's a very, very important distinction to draw here, right? So most restaurants work with past data and projections, like how did we do last year in week 34 and what events are coming up and how are bookings looking so far? And then you staff and order and execute from there, right? 
And when you can reasonably know that it's 96 guests every single night, like Alinea does, and the only reasonable curveballs are allergies and maybe some timings of seatings, like a table was supposed to sit at 7, but they're now showing up at 7.30, you have the ability to rethink the rules. And I think that's what this is. Again, I'm not talking shit on this Chris Popel guy. I think he found something that was, you know, reasonably up on their site for a while. And he just saw it and kind of tilted his head to the side and was like, I just kind of want to know what's going on here. He like it's in the replies when Nick Kikonis replied to him. He Chris tried to be a little bit snarky and then was like, oh, my God, I didn't realize who you are. Um, So. Yeah, I, I, I think he just wasn't aware of the policy, and I'm just, my goal here in covering this is to make sure that when you can enter a conversation where someone brings this up, like, hey, did you see this thing on uh, Twitter about Alinea not taking three tops? Because um, I just don't want you to go with the headline, and I want you to be able to have some numbers to kind of back it up, right? I think this is... Um, one of those things where certain people drew similarities to other industries, like you would never uh, book... Uh, seats at a concert and then you know what I mean like people try to draw comparisons to like sporting events or other things that you quote unquote buy tickets for and I don't necessarily think this is the same because uh for like it's physical space at a restaurant right like a four top is a four top and yeah like it takes up the same real estate in a restaurant whether it's three people or four people somebody posted on on that same twitter that that uh you need to create triangular tables and then just profit from that I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, Hello from uh, Mexico City. A story I was excited to cover but realized only the trailer was available when I initially saved this. You could, I think, watch a larger section of this movie. There's a short that just came out called The Dishwasher, and it's pretty... I'm going to call it related is how I'm going to word that. Um, let me give you the 411 real quick. Uh, Nicolas is the main character. He's a dishwasher. He's an immigrant. He works in a high-end restaurant where the white male chef asks him to go find authentic tortillas for a dish they're trying to do for the menu. And what transpires from there is effectively the story of this kind of short movie. And the website that I've linked in the show notes has more info. Quote, Nicolas's community cannot understand why the objectively correct answer to his quest, homemade tortillas are a myth, his errand is misguided, and he should explain as much to his boss, can still be the wrong answer to Nicolas and to the culture in which he's trying to prove himself. Authenticity as a concept becomes besides the point, and the conflict of the film shifts from the simple procuring of tortillas to his internal psychology as he navigates the compelling culture and class expectations that assail him from either side of the two-world divide. It's a version of the classic buying-in versus selling out debate familiar to most young people with ambition and uniquely poignant to Nicholas as an immigrant. How much degradation, cultural and economic, is Nicholas willing to endure in order to realize his dream of success? End quote. So like I said, it's available on HBO. Uh, HBO did buy it, and it's currently offline. I'm not 100% sure if you can watch it right now on HBO. You can watch the super short trailer through the link or even find it playing possibly if you've got like a super indie theater near you. Has anyone seen this? Can they? Has anyone watched the Dishwasher movie? Can you confirm? Was it accurate? Is it um, like... Do you think that it was kind of how most people viewed the movie Burnt with Bradley Cooper, where you're like, this is a little bit too Hollywoodized? I've personally never held the official title of dishwasher. I've washed plenty of dishes all throughout culinary school, and I've been the dishwasher on the days off when that employee couldn't come in. Um, I, but like, 
I would always love being the dishwasher's homie when I was working with restaurants. I would make them dope plates of food at the end of the night. I would always be the one to like scrape my pans out and make sure I wasn't giving people burnt things. I was always hella fast at breaking down and giving my dirty stuff to them very fast. And they'd always hook me up on the flip side, right, with seafood towels. And they'd come online and wash stuff for me. I just, I do remember at Lisvaka you used to have to wash your own pans on the line uh, during those service, those services, and that was uh, not fun on a busy night. But yeah, as a PSA, take care of your dishwashers. Um, and 98% of the time, they will also take care of you. But yeah, um, I've also had that totally bizarro request to get weird ingredients from my boss. I think other people can relate um, to that. And you know, it's one of those situations where you just have to look at that person and say, yes, chef, because what are you going to say, right? Because it doesn't sound that hard, like go get tortillas, go get lard, go get buckwheat flour. But then it turns into this crazy saga that can often be a really crazy story that no one that works a nine to five would probably ever or ever understand. But uh, that is our lives, right? Um. So while I don't think that that last story was cultural appropriation or explo- exploitation, I thought, uh, it, if anything, it was an opportunity to tell a great story. This next story came out back in December. I never got a chance to cover it, but I wanted to slot it in here as one of the things that I typically do on the show, which is like a cautionary tale. Because this totally blew up in this guy's face. Did you guys see this? This is uh, Gianluca Gorini's. He is a chef in Italy who participated in the Gelinaz Shuffle. It's a pretty high-profile network of chefs and writers and kind of that in-crowd that says, hey, if you you have a dope restaurant in Taiwan, you go to San Francisco, and then you place up in Napa, why don't you go to Spain? And then a restaurant in Spain, why don't you go to Japan? And then all these chefs swap places for this event that is called the Jelenaz Shuffle. And it's pretty impossible to get a seat unless, and I guess this guy wasn't technically in another chef's restaurant. It wasn't 100% clear what happened when I was doing my research on it because apparently he had recipes from Victor Leong's place, Li Ho Fook, in Melbourne. And yes, I say Melbourne now because when I was in Melbourne, people would laugh at me when I said Melbourne, Melbourne. It was apparently the wrong thing to say. Who knew? It's Melbourne, folks. And I and uh, so this guy, Gianluca Garini, and his team decided it would be a good idea to put on conical hats and pull the corners of their eyes and take a photo and put it on Instagram to say they're excited. Damn. Totally blew up in their face. Now, the chef deleted the post and then put up another photo of him, like, with the oh shucks face on, and in the statement saying, quote, I never thought that a photo could generate all of this. The shot in question was dictated by the excitement and enthusiasm and the confrontation with a new culture has generated in our daily work. I realize I probably don't know the subject of the question well enough, and I have underestimated its meaning. I'm against all forms of violence, and above all, I'm against all forms of racism saying, please, Victor, I would love to invite you to come to Italy and spend some days here in my restaurant as my guest to celebrate the meaning of the relations between different cultures and make a forehands dinner together. There's more to that, um, but that's where I'm going to end my quoting on this. Um, Jelenaz has also responded, saying they won't be calling him back to do any events with them, and all proceeds from his dinner will go towards, quote, an association that fights against all forms of discrimination worldwide, I-M-A-D-R, end quote. 
And look, folks, I've said it before, and I want to say it again, none of us got into this industry because we particularly love HR or coloring inside the lines or being too buttoned up, right? The kitchen, especially one that is pictured here where it's a lot of young guys, they're cooking with dishes they've never made before, they're working with new ingredients, things get funny when they shouldn't be, the jokes get made, like, I get it, right? We in Norway had staff from 14 different countries working at the restaurant. And it was so fun to rag on the guy from India because then he would rag on the guy from the Netherlands for speaking Dutch because Dutch kind of sounds funny. And then the Dutch guy would make fun of me because I was an American who likes tons of butter on my bread and he would call me fat even though I'm not fat, right? And there are just so many like morale boosting moments that come from being able to not take yourself too seriously. But, and I know you all were waiting for it, the but, I, if, if you would not feel comfortable with someone making jokes about your race or your gender or your sexual orientation or any of the things that get like intensely hurtful when you see how it gets unproductively prejudiced against, like anything that actively excludes people or just discriminates based on stereotypes, I know it sounds obvious, but like think before you speak. Again, this is like me trying to be big brother to some of you. This is trying to be like a rational voice uh, to all of this stuff. And like, yeah, think before you speak. And arguably more importantly, don't post it on freaking Instagram. Dude, I cringed so hard when I saw this photo because I know that it came from a place of these guys being so giggly at each other when they took this picture. And I don't think they were directly trying to discriminate or they weren't trying to be hurtful. But it's like it shows insensitivity, it shows lack of awareness. And the thing for me is like, ask yourself before you post that, how can this be tastefully fun? And you look at this photo that got posted and it's like, like, I guess this can be taken the wrong way. And if that's the case, probably don't post it, right? And I'm reminded of that prom dress story that we saw come out like two years ago. Remember that girl that wore the traditional Chinese garment and she was white and wore it to prom and she posted a photo and like hella people bullied her for it. Like this went way, that went way more viral than this did. And people called it cultural appropriation. She said she was appreciating the culture and the garment wearing it because it was beautiful. And that's why I think this hits differently. I don't think Gianluco or Luco or his team was honoring right? Or showing what they think is beautiful about Lee Ho Fook's food. They basically distilled it down to making fun of facial features and striking kung fu poses, right? So I guess as much as this is, again, a cautionary tale for you, make sure that you trust whomever is posting on social media on your behalf or that you have proper training with your teams about stuff like this. I mean, uh, Starbucks had to do a big round of training with their teams on on this kind of stuff. I, I just I don't want to see any of you folks become a news story, but I also don't want kitchens to become this place where no jokes jokes are allowed because we're all like so woke that everything could potentially be offensive, right? Um, I just think we slowly look at situations. We say, "Yep, that one went way too far," and then we look at others and say, "Yeah, that's hilarious," but cross check it with this question of did anybody get hurt? Like, can you also do the same thing to me and not hurt me? Right. And then we continue to learn. And I think that's the best we can do. As with most of these potentially controversial stories, I would love to start a conversation with you. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Please tweet at me or drop a comment. Next story. This one's kind of short. This is a great piece that came out from GQ. Michael Chernow did a 
the kind of pro chef breaks down cooking scenes from movies, videos on YouTube. I watched it. I genuinely agreed with most everything he had to say. I know they did one with um, Jocko Willink on military scenes. They did one with Cam Haynes on archery stuff. And they did one for us, for chefs, right? And as someone who genuinely geeked out at Ratatouille when I saw Ratatouille for the first time because they actually consulted with Thomas Keller on that while I was working for him at the time, and you can literally see that kitchen and see it mirror per se's kitchen. I like geeked out over that so hard. I was like, oh my God, this made it into a Pixar movie. Um, but yeah, I genuinely enjoy this. And I, I expected it to be something where I would go in and be like, yeah, they picked the wrong guy to be the quote unquote pro chef in the situation. But like he talks about great stuff and the guy's got a ton of restaurants. So I enjoyed this movie. It's not something I think that you would miss if you skipped it. But if you want to spend 20 minutes doing something fun, make it this. It was a good, it was a good YouTube video. Um, let's see. I do, there's a lot of comments coming through. I want to see, um, what questions are coming. (laughs) The, the humor in kitchens is truly unique. What am I having for dinner? I'm going to the opening, uh, the industry night at Taku tonight. Um, Shoda's new restaurant. There's such a huge difference between making jokes like that in private with close, close friends who know where you're coming from and posting it in public. Um, anyways, they can, yeah, they did consult with Thomas Keller on Ratatouille. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, next piece comes from a guy that I respect a ton. I followed him on Twitter for a long time. That is Richie Nakano. He's out of San Francisco. He is very active on Twitter and very opinionated on a lot of news. And I've covered him on the podcast before, but he's recently taken a job at Chef's Feed, which I think is really cool. I would love to get him on the podcast for an interview someday, but I'm just so happy that he's writing and producing content for them. And he put out this piece that is pretty relevant to a lot of stuff that we've been covering over the past uh, few weeks or so. And it's called The Unspoken Rules of the Fickle Inspiration Game. And I really hate to quote so much of this article, but it's like he took a lot of words right out of my mouth, so I'm going to read a lot of it. So, quote, And though the line between drawing inspiration and outright stealing can be a tricky line to walk, stealing isn't always bad, as long as you do it the right way. Corey Lee's in situ, an entire restaurant as a cover band, recreating the culinary world's masterpieces as museum-worthy expositions down to every garnish, is one example. It's a simple game of giving credit where credit is due after putting your own spin on it, making it an homage, as Lee does. And then he goes on to talk about... um, how chefs, as they get inspired by other chefs, either in person at guest chef dinners or they see a photo on Instagram and they think it's a good idea, quote, one of the most common things chefs say to each other after they've tried something they love is, quote, I'm going to steal this, end quote. It serves as both a compliment and a heads up, but what else is implicitly expected? At attribution. Doesn't have to be a grand statement, but it's got to be something, clever or direct, on social media or on your menu. No, there's no need to list everyone who played a part in the dish's conception on your small plate section, but a good rule of thumb seems to be let the person know, either in person or in a reverential social media tagging sort of way, and maybe describe that dish in a little subtle way that pays tribute. And that's referencing something like, well, I wanted to do something. T- like the arpege egg, but spin it in this way. Or I saw Thomas Keller do the uh, salmon cornet, and I thought ice cream cone, blah, blah, blah. Do you know what I mean? So uh, not necessarily saying that this is their dish, because you are putting your own spin on it, 
but kind of drawing, connecting the uh, degrees of separation, right, back one to where you got the idea from, right? Uh, it, it says another quote, quote, if you do nothing, you might just be an asshole, end quote. And then the last uh, point I'll read from this article saying, quote, otherwise the vast majority of the hashtag chef life hashtag will be bald confessions of culinary inadequacy, will look like opportunists masquerading as creators. I think that's a great quote. We don't want to be opportunists masquerading as creators. So I know I read a lot of this article out loud. It's uh, probably double the length of what I basically just audibly said, but it's written in a way that I, again, almost nearly 100% agree with, but have yet to put words to myself on chefs getting inspired in the creative process. It does reference social media and the speed at which ideas travel. It talks about the infallible desire of chefs to be creative. And when you get to that stage in your career where you can cook almost anything, if given enough time and learn how, the competitive advantage that you have is kind of your ideas and how those ideas get presented to the guest. And when I'm guilty myself of remixing ideas and pushing the notion of remixing ideas to you folks, I have to cover these kind of asterisk style articles that's like, yes, be inspired from a myriad of different places, but don't then also claim that you are this 100% original, never-been-seen-before phenom of a creative genius, right? Because we're all getting our ideas constantly from different places. So the moral of the story being, if you have an opportunity to either, like I said, draw that degree of inspiration back or connect that dot one uh, stage backwards to where you were inspired by, especially if it's like you're serving a dish out of a hollow egg, dude, like you got that from somewhere, right? That's not your idea, right? I think that's where this article is pushing people towards. If you've got stories that reference what's covered in this article, I if you've had ideas of yours that were blatantly stolen with no credit given, or even if you've run into a scenario where you've seen the kind of thread of inspiration done well, and you've seen that giving credit where credit is due, done tastefully, uh, where it actually makes both parties happy, I would love to know uh, those examples, either down low in the comments or uh, tweet at me. I want to hear your stories. Next up, a piece of news that I just kind of wanted to put on your radar. World's 50 Best has launched a new directory, aside from their yearly, unfortunately named list of 100 restaurants that now breaks down into regions like Latin America and Asia. They now have a product called Discovery, and I'm really stoked to see it. I haven't necessarily used it yet from a utility perspective. Like, I haven't uh, planned a trip and exclusively used World's 50 Best Discovery to get recommendations of restaurants. Most of you know that I have a few cities that I rely on Eater to get those recommendations from, but this provides a really, really great opportunity for you to use this as a resource if you're traveling to Denmark or traveling to Milan or going to Kyoto. Maybe not Milan or Japan right now. Flights are delayed, huh? But yeah, poke around on it. I think some of you that are really cocktail heads might also get a lot of value from the fact that they categorize bars separately and they give them the love that they deserve. They don't just lump it all in with restaurants. I think that this is kind of a natural extension of this brand that's kind of made a name for itself, uh, covering the best of the best to effectively sell the sawdust, right? They go to Noma. They probably had their inspector also go to four or five other more casual but still really high-quality places in Copenhagen. So this is kind of a way for them to publish that content and bring value because those their, their employees, quote-unquote, their contractors are going there regardless. 
I also need to give a shout out to Chef Chris and the whole team at Lisfriket for getting recommended as the only spot in Bergen, Norway. I know Bara got the first Michelin star for the city a couple weeks back. Congratulations to them. But I just, I, I'm uh, very fortunately biased as being an ex-employee of Chris's, but I, I do think that he continues to be doing all of the right networking, the smart networking, and getting the most consistent and better media opportunities. I like he made that call when I was there to push for the Michelin star from a quality and consistency perspective, but he didn't want to stoop down in his opinion to a level that he wouldn't feel comfortable with just to appeal to the Michelin inspectors. And that's to me is a true ego versus enemy style methodology of looking at your career and your projects. And I was incredibly inspired by that. So Huge shout out to everyone that's getting some extra love since the Discovery portal got launched. Um, I will be looking up Bangkok places because barring any other weird travel restrictions, we're still going to Bangkok next week. So that should be super fun. I already have a restaurant Ga reserved, which is supposed to be incredible Indian food in Bangkok. Uh, this is a story that you, one of you folks sent me. It's a request to cover this story. I'm going to avoid digging too deep and just... If you want to read it, you should, You should because if anything that I'm about to say resonates, I think you would get some value from this story. I'm also calling this a cautionary tale. I'm calling it a lesson in, you know, be thoughtful of who you go into business with. The story is out of Charleston. Sorghum and Salt's head chef, whose name is Christian Hunter, has resigned uh, from the Charleston restaurant. And there's a bunch of chat about wanting to keep dishes on the menu when ingredients were out of season and not paying the people enough, and so much more drama that's, again, a cautionary tale of doing what my business partner, Jade, and I have called um, having alignment on values, like being sure that this person who is going to be your general manager or your head of sales or your business development person or your investor, like they might be great at getting people in the door and getting butts in seats, but if they couldn't care less about this thing called seasonality that you hold as like the pedestal, that's not an alignment on values. And you should either have that conversation to say, this is what I'm not willing to budge on and working on this project is not worth it to me if I can't have X, Y, Z. Or you should just call it a wash from the start because not having that radical transparency in a partnership causes issues like this to hash themselves out in pretty ugly ways. So 100% read it if you aren't familiar with squabbles like this and use it as kind of a story to call back on when you're in the position to take on partners in your business. And I hope some of you will be like, nope, I'm not going to make that mistake because I heard it on the Emulsion podcast. Oh man, this one came as a bit of a shock. Did you folks see this? This got posted also in December. Laurent, Laurent Gras is leaving Cezanne. And this, again, is old news, but the timing of it was so funny, dude. Like, he had just taken over. Uh, the restaurant lost a star. Um, I had a friend of mine at the time, uh, like a friend of me and Hubert, who is a sous chef at Cezanne. He came to Seattle to visit, and he was telling us all the drama uh, that happened during that time, which just made it that much more un unfortunate to hear about. So I'm going to respect this friend of mine's request to not share too many details until the Cezanne team decides to do like a full press release. But yeah, it seems like a very weird time to work for Cezanne. So Laurent put it out on an Instagram post. 
Apparently, everything that chefs post on Instagram is a press release now. That's like the preferred press release platform. And it basically says that Laurent is heading back to New York to, quote, be closer to his family, end quote. And they're going to reintroduce a new experience to Cezanne for 2020. And the big question here is, who comes in to fill this vacuum, right? You had this massive uh, leadership force, the chef of the restaurant leave, and because the orbit of Cezanne, like, there's a lot of gravity that Cezanne carries, and so it does produce a little bit of a vacuum. So, like, the last time that we had a really talented chef step in these shoes to fill this role that is chef of Cezanne, it didn't go so great. So the question becomes... Does Josh Skeens finally have the leverage to step back in and take the helm again? Almost like an I told you so to the people that pushed him out to kind of say, look, we've got this concept in Angler that has potential to scale. Cezanne can then almost turn into like an R&D slash flagship style place for his brand. Uh, he keeps the ranch and hires someone to run Cezanne for him. That's not like another chef that has any sort of clout. It's like a understudy of Skeens. Is that the process? Because realistically, if he wants to test something for Angler LA, for example, he can run it for 100 people per night at Cezanne and then get the sourcing down, get the recipes down, test the dish with a reasonable amount of scale in an environment where he's kind of super comfortable with that, with that service environment. And then that work gets translated to something that, can, that they can serve 1,500 a week of at Angler. I think that would be an incredibly smart move. But I think the biggest thing that sticks out was hearing my friend talk about how big of a push it is at Cezanne, just in general. And I think with having the reputation that Cezanne has in San Francisco, I don't see the restaurant itself going away. I see it as kind of a turning point into something that rises from the ashes like a phoenix and becomes almost like the Chez Panisse of our generation. If you draw the parallels of that style of kitchen and cooking and structure and sourcing and presentation, that has rippled out so far. And I'm in no way saying that Josh Skeens is a good guy. I know he's got a lot of critics in this industry, and a lot of that criticism comes for very valid reasons, right? I just think that he's an outlier in the industry, and this saga has been fascinating to follow. So I'm, I'm curious. Do you have thoughts on Laurent leaving Cezanne? Do you have thoughts if uh, uh, Josh is going to come back? Do you have any drama that you want to share? Love, love, love to know. All right. I was really excited to read this piece, but I dissected it a little bit, and there's probably like 30% that I agree with, and then the remaining 70% ends up getting a little too woke and watered down for me, so let's dig into it. This is called The Midlife Crisis of the American Restaurant Review, and it basically says that we've had this 60-plus year run of like the old-school proper restaurant reviews, and the past two-ish years, and the author does reference 2018 with the Me Too movement as being kind of a turning point for uh, like critics and writers as almost pushing these people to a question the traditional framework of a restaurant review and expand beyond just how the food and the dining room and the wine list feel to experience. Quote, the old ideal of critic as neutral arbiter gives way to a modern vision of the critic as hip, multicultural storyteller. I don't see the, and this is Soleil Ho talking, I don't see the critic's task as one of simply deciding if a food or restaurant experience is pleasing, but rather using an aesthetic evaluation of restaurants to tell stories about the connections between people, cultures, and communities, end quote. 
So there are five things that this author, Theodore G-I-O-I-A, Gioia, suggests that we consider. So let's scroll down and kind of do a little bit of a reacts to these. The first pointer that this person is suggesting is to redefine the question. The field's core question should be revised to, would I recommend this spot to an upper middle class diner to why does this dining experience matter? And I don't necessarily know if I agree with that. I don't, I think what you're then doing by changing the prompt of the piece of writing is you are either casting too wide of a net, so therefore this piece is for everyone and therefore for no one, or you are potentially giving people that effect that we see go viral on Twitter like twice a year, right? Where you see the people who just come to the recipe for the recipe and then they get all this food writing before the recipe. So like, if you're acknowledging that people just want to hear about your restaurant experience, why don't you just give them their restaurant experience and then publish concurrently, right, in tandem with that, another piece that can dive a little bit deeper into the social issues that go along with um, serving tamales in Santa Clara, California. The other, uh, number two, the number two point that they are suggesting here is to reimagine the setting and then the subtext of that is the review must escape the dining room search for unexpected settings such as schools jails homeless shelters wedding banquets military bases monasteries corporate cafeterias or convents any location whose meals resonate with social societal significance for instance a critic who wants to spotlight urban poverty could review a neighborhood by evaluating the dining options of a three-block radius for an affluent part of the no valley versus a food desert in western oakland by expanding the field of acceptable topics the review can evolve from judging what's on the plate to investigating the forces that shape what's not on the menu. I'm going to talk about this in my big rant I have at the end of this. Number three, experiment with format. And then it does reference what Soleil Ho has done, which is basically making her reviews like a three-act play, almost like following a different format than just, um, what does it call it here? Just coming up with a more imaginative format that will, quote, lead to ener- lively, energetic writing. Number four is dialogue over monologue. It says classic restaurant criticism can feel like an editorial dictatorship. And then it talks about um, eating with a truck driver at Cezanne will tell you things about tasting menus that Bon Appetit never could. Yes, but does that bring value? That's my question. It's not that I don't think that the truck driver's opinion is valuable, but like if that audience wants to hear from someone who eats around the world what they think about Cezanne, adding a truck driver's opinion, I don't know if that brings value. Like who, the biggest question is like, who is this for? And I'm going to get to that in in more, more later. And then the last, uh, the fifth piece here is to shake up the speaker. And it says, big city gourmets are not the only people qualified to be food writers. It's time to break up the white male monopoly in the genre by inviting overlooked perspectives to join the review page. So let's get to my thoughts. I don't agree with all of these. I've made that abundantly clear. I think it's important to acknowledge that we've come into a perfect storm of this article getting getting written. I don't think the timing is weird. I think that it's completely justified to bring up these concerns. I think it's producing this pendulum swing. And the person I'm going to use 
for this, may he rest in peace, is Anthony Bourdain. He's not with us anymore, but millions of people got value from him checking so many of these boxes. So it's not like it's not possible. I think that the thing that made him as successful as he was is the fact that we all respected him as a person, we respected him as a chef, and we respected him as a writer. And when none of these critics have brands outside of their publication that they're tied to or write for, like it's not like I can say I read The Kitchen Confidential of Pete Wells because he's a journalist, right? On the New York Times website, when you go to look at his profile as a contributor to the New York Times, they literally put his articles of Senior Frogs and his review of Danielle that went viral and his Guy Fieri Times Square review and his viral per se review three paragraphs above the fact that he's won James Beard Awards five times in journalism. So you have this lack of respect for the people spouting these words, coupled with this completely fucked incentive structure for networks and publications to only reward clicks. And so it's no wonder that many people can't take these writings seriously. Sure, maybe you wrote a great piece of prose on this Brazilian concept that you reviewed. But three weeks ago, you wrote something like, I'm thinking of the piece that I covered where that lady ripped apart all of the three Michelin star places in California as like a clear stab at these pricey places just to get clicks. Like it was completely unfounded criticism. And I'm like, how am I expected to take yourself seriously when you're completely willing just to say fuck it to do clicks, but then also you want to be taken seriously because you're trying to tell this important story on this other topic. Anthony Bourdain never went for clicks right? He found a way to write his voiceovers for his show as an expression of his talent as a writer. He said, I don't have to write and publish on the internet. I can write and that will be the voiceover that I tell on CNN, for example. And that's more or less what I want to push. I, I think these people are so married to this medium of food writing in the form of articles and it's done the kind of cell manipulation thing where it's mutated a few times as it's uh, expanded and now you're trying to measure all of these different forms of writing and these way, these different stories and these different formats, and you're trying to measure them by the same measuring stick, which is food writing. And it's no wonder that you're frustrated. So this piece mentions it itself. It talks about music and how pop songs have changed with the times to accommodate Spotify sales instead of selling albums. And I would agree that something similar needs to happen with food writing. I'm not saying that we all ignore what happens behind the scenes at restaurants, whether it's bad work environments or staff abuse or financial shadiness, any of that. But it's like, if Rolling Stone reviews an album as an album, how does it listen as an album? Is it cohesive? Is it an expression of where the artist is now? Is it going to sell well? Does it satisfy that artist's fans? The fact that the crew that sets up the stage for that artist might be hiring minimum wage workers to set up for concerts is a completely different conversation. Yes, that artist put out the album, and that artist also is responsible for who they hire as crew at their concerts. I don't personally think that news like that should be factored in an album review. That's a separate conversation. It is 2020. Shady business practices come out in the wash. It's all going to catch up to everybody eventually. It's only a matter of time. But put it out in a tweet. Talk about it in your podcast. I'm not saying brush it under the rug. But the people who want to read your review of the album don't want a side of drama to go with it. 
and maybe I'm alone in this, but it's like I'm trying to practice what I preach here. I will talk shit on Josh Skeens in this podcast for swindling that barber lady out of six plus figures worth of wine and other expenses. I will say that on the podcast, but then concurrently, I will also go to Angler and produce a piece of content where I don't mention that story even once. I don't need the drama to make the content on my meal interesting. And I think that's another issue, right? I think writers feel the pressure to produce novelty and it's not helping that the restaurant space as a whole over the past, I would say, three to six years has been a little bit stagnant. And also, concurrently not helping the the problem is the fact that they talk shit on high-end foods, on high-end food in general. They take these ambitious restaurants that are pushing the envelope because um, they want to come up with new creative ideas, and then these people that write about food poo-poo them because they're too expensive or they're too disconnected or the worst, which just makes my blood boil, they don't want to put them on blast because the chef is white and or male. Don't get me started on that. You, you know that when you do that, you're doing what you say you don't like, right? If you don't think people should judge chefs based on the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or whatever, and you think that you should just judge their work, why are you automatically dismissing the chef because he or she is white and or male? It's so hypocritical. Anyways, so they say foo-foo to that spectrum of restaurants that's pushing the envelope in favor of food that has quote-unquote more soul or quote-unquote deeper roots. And then they get frustrated because once one writer writes about the tamale shop or the noodle place, that story has been told. And then any writer that gets that story to that like 90-95% of telling that story well, that, that leaves little room for improvement to talk about that food again. So if there isn't this wealth of content and stories to tell, and yes, I love seeing people wrap cultural stories and societal issues with food because I think it's all connected, but then, hey, don't call it a restaurant review. If you're making it this story about why this cultural influence matters, don't call it a restaurant review. Call it an opinion piece. Call it what it is. Tell me, who is this piece for? I know that my This Place Called videos get watched by industry people. I'm not making these videos for Anna's parents, right? Because I don't have to explain what potato mousseline is in my Le Bernardin video. I would rather talk about why those flavors worked together, how they presented it in a dope sea urchin ceramic bowl. Like, I want to show that stuff because I know who it's for. I know you folks like to geek out on stuff like that. So overall... Obviously, I get a little bit spicy in this story, and there certainly are contradictory arguments for all of my points. If you want to read the full piece, it's linked up in the show notes. For example, arguing that using food is more productive than just being a political journalist. Salejo saying, quote, transforming the review. Oh, sorry, this is quoting the article, but I will talk about Salejo. Quote, transforming the review into a mouthpiece for progressive politics is the opinion a la mode for in food media. Quote, using food to talk about systems is a way to get people to start thinking about these things as a little gentler than a straight political editorial, end quote. 
But yeah, I, I, I do agree that food journalism is in a weird place overall. This article calls it a midlife crisis. Where it goes from here, I'm not 100% sure. I'm not saying I'm a pro in food journalism or content creation by any stretch, but I do play in this space with the projects that I work on and that I share, so I wanted to kind of chime in and share my two cents. What do you folks have to say on this kind of stuff? This one comes next. This one's fast. This isn't really a story. It's more of a recommendation. You guys should check out ment.no, ment.no, for some really dope ceramics because they use these ceramics at the newly Michelin-starred Under in Norway because had I not been bringing back a full suitcase of garments from T. Michael on my trip to Bergen, I would have bought wares from these guys. In particular, the sauce pours from the Under collection are really, really striking and unique, in my opinion. And if and when I get a space, there will be an order from ment.no. Definitely check out uh, their stuff if you want some cool service pieces for your pop-ups or for your station or for your projects on your days off. Again, that's ment.no. It's not a sponsor. It's just someone something that I saw, and I was like, damn, I got to tell the podcast folks about this. Next story, I think this is the last indus- uh, second to last industry story, coming from Nashville, Nashville, Charleston. Sean Brock has another project. I posted this on Twitter. I don't know how he does it. He's got so many balls in the air right now. He's all over the place. It's called Side Gig, and it's almost like a Upwork slash Task Rabbit for restaurant workers and restaurants themselves. And. Quote, fresh from his sabbatical after suffering from overwork, Sean Brock is back and firing on all cylinders, teaming up with chef Ben Ellsworth. He has a new project that has been in beta for months and is now rolled out and ready for signups. The website allows chefs to create a profile where they can set their skills, experience, and preferred working hours. And when the restaurants need extra help, they can post a gig and the website matches them with potential workers. Chefs will get an alert when the gig is open and they can choose to apply. Side gig will take care of the taxman and insurance. End quote. And I guess the biggest question I have to follow this up for you folks is, will you be creating a profile? Have any of you played around with this yet? Um, if you run your own spot, is this a giant sigh of relief for you? Or are you already using something like culinary agents to hire? It's going to be very interesting to see where this goes. I think it's going to force a lot of businesses to systemize a lot of their processes. Because if you put a post out on SideGig as a restaurant, you 100% you're 100% better off having that role or position be something that's easy to swap people in and out of, right? Having diagrams on the wall and maps and SOPs, standard operating procedures. If you can find a way to make it attractive for the girl who is studying to be an architect to pick up two shifts a week, or if you make it a no-brainer for the line cook who wants to make extra money on her days off, you could save tons of money as an operator. But you can't make it this fly by to the seat of your pants, just jump in kind of a position, right? Because nobody wants that told to them on a Friday night when you hire them through side gig of like, hey, just jump in and work this station or hey, just jump in and clean this thing. You know what I mean? Because you risk totally screwing yourself if you aren't prepared to have someone come in on day one and not know what to do. Because then you aren't saving yourself any time because then you just constantly have to... Uh, hold that person's hand and train them the entire day. I'm not saying that uh, this is going to be something where you don't have to train people. But yeah, 
I'm 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 excited to see as the gig economy makes its way into restaurants how that will change the operations of a place. Uh, yeah, this is called side gig. Chris, we gotta get a podcast together, man. Yeah, this is a Sean Brock side gig. Um, last industry story is might come as a bit of a shock to some of you folks, actually, because I'm about to semi-agree with a piece written by Ryan Sutton. And this might be a first on the Emulsion Podcast. He put out this piece called Dear Expensive Restaurants, Stop Posting Online Menus Without Prices. And I want to talk about it. So his gripes are like Cosme puts their menu on their website. And it basically shows you a PDF of what you would get handed as a PDF, as a printed menu when you sit down, but it's missing that critical piece of info, prices on dishes or the price on the tasting menu. And Ryan is salty about it, saying, quote, hiding the cost prevents consumers from engaging in any type of informed planning, something that's particularly important for upscale venues, such as these where people may be saving up for a splurge meal. It also makes it harder to watch for price hikes, like at Cosme, where the duck carnitas has jumped from $45 to nearly $98 since 2014, and for comparing prices with its competitors. So Joe and I want to go out for steak. I say we should go to this steak place. Uh, the steak is $54. If you don't list the price, Joe and I risk going to a place where it's $105 for a steak. That would be pretty shitty if we're doing research. So yes, there is the stereotypical Ryan Sutton complaining about why do things cost so much in this piece, he says as he rolls his eyes. But where this agreement comes from, and the reason that I am actually endorsing what he's saying, is me asking myself... Where does the benefit lie in not actively listing the prices? Because if you're saying that you would lose people if you listed prices on your website, you risk doing something much worse, arguably, my opinion, which is causing that sticker shock at the table. Why not let that guest see the prices, say, oh, that's a little bit too much for my liking, and then choose a different spot? Why would you make that uncomfortable scenario happen while they're in your four walls? And then I think about a thing that we do at Voyager's Table. We have a lot of people that reach out to us because they found us on Instagram or they like it's a cold lead or, you know what I mean? They've been to an event before, but they've never actually worked with us yet. And they reach out and they say they want to do a private dinner with us. And I send them this graphically designed piece that I made, which is basically example menus, basically to show if you're looking for beef tenderloin with roasted potatoes and asparagus, that's not really what we do. And it says in that PDF that all menus are custom because that's what we pride ourselves on. And it's a great way to filter people from saying, yes, I want to do this event, but then saying, I want mixed green salad with goat cheese and sliced apples. It's probably not the best choice for you to work with us because we don't have that. Like we don't make that. We will make that if that's what you want to do, but it will probably be more expensive than someone who has that as an option on their catering menu. But the kicker is that I also include pricing for each menu with that PDF. There are numbers that go along with, you want this menu, here's an example menu, here's what that example menu costs. Because it shows potential clients, look, we aren't going to be the cheapest option for you, but this is what you can expect. And it is an incredible time saver for us. I used to write custom menus when a client was just in the proposal phase that was before we used to take deposits, like I would work for that client before getting paid. 
and then realized the client was literally just shopping around. And that's arguably what 90% plus of people are doing when they look at your menu online. They're shopping around. If they are dead set on coming, if they read an article about you, if their friends told uh, you have to go to Cosme, they don't care the price for the most part. They're going to go. They care if you are pitching it as like a $2 sign thing on Yelp and they go and it's a $400 tasting menu. But like for the most part, if you're set on going, you're probably just looking at the menu online to see like what are they serving right now? What's the what's the main course meat right now? So where is it productive to not list prices? I'm genuinely curious. I want someone to tell me we've seen a 25% increase in booking conversion since we removed our prices and people are happy to pay what we charge because XYZ. Like I want that case study. But currently thinking through like guest experience and uh, people hating things like airlines that nickel and dime them because they show one price when you're booking and then they change the price when you get there, like that pisses people off. So I don't see where it is beneficial to not list prices. So I want to know a case study where it's the opposite. I want to hear a story that proves me wrong because I get it. Once you have a certain level of reputation and you identify your audience, if those people happen to be affluent and money isn't an object for them, I see why you wouldn't want to list prices because it's the difference between what it is, is it's a difference between driving past a Ford dealership where they've got big neon numbers on the car and they show you how much it is or how much it costs per month versus going to an Aston Martin dealership or showroom where the idea is that you go in, you try the car. If you want to buy, you're going to come with a plan of how you're going to pay for it. But the difference is an Aston Martin is $200,000 and the muscles at Lilia in Brooklyn is less than 30 bucks. Again, I don't know what the price is because they don't list their prices. I guess the biggest thing for me is like, be real with people. If we're going to confidently say that the roast chicken costs $78 for two people, don't apologize for it. Because what you're saying in in confidently dictating your price is, it's $78. With that, I can pay my people what I feel good about. I pay my purveyors what I feel good about. I get to take home enough so that I can be open next year. It's that shtick in filmmaking. Don't treat the audience like they're stupid. Your guests aren't stupid. You aren't pulling a fast one on them by not presenting the numbers until they're seated at table 12. If anything, that further perpetuates people on Yelp from going on and screenshotting your menus and posting their check averages on Google Maps, which ultimately takes the control away from you. Because you could have someone spend $15 on the mussels and $24 on the fettuccine and $15 on a glass of wine, but when they go on to make their Google review... They only talk about the food and they say they spent 65 bucks at your place with tax and tip and all of a sudden people are calling you overpriced because they forgot to mention the wine. When you take ownership and you tell the story, you can control the facts and the narrative that gets painted about your business. So I'm truly eager to see some counter arguments on this. Please let me know. All right, let's talk about non-industry stories. That was a lot. Um... I talked to Joe about it a little bit. I pre-ordered the Fujifilm X-T4. I have been looking to condense because the ideal situation is I start to travel with a drone. If I can just have one camera body, it's APS-C. It's going to be smaller. I don't think I'm going to miss full frame. Yeah, I know. Joe likes the a7 III. I don't know. I pre-ordered it. I'm going to get it in the studio. I'm going to test it. If I don't like it, 
I can always just send it back to B&H. It doesn't come out till April 30th, so we got to wait a little bit. But if all if all goes well, I'm actually going to profit off of selling all my Sony gear because I'm, I don't know. I was loyal for a really long time, but, you know, the features on this are dope, and I like the color science a lot. I watched Parasite. It was amazing. I thought it was very well done. If you haven't seen Parasite yet, I can highly recommend it. It's a good movie for your day off. Just like veg out on the couch and watch Parasite. Um, I started watching season two of Altered Carbon. I didn't like the first two episodes. It got better once they started to develop the story arc of the of Poe a little bit more. I still don't like the direction that they're taking Kel. I think I'm on episode five, so I've still got a couple episodes to go. Um, season one was just so good. Damn. Who who knows? Um, did I miss anything? I don't think so. Uh, I do want to pitch signing up for Patreon because the live stream that's going to be published uh, once we edit it is all about creativity. And then the one after this is going to be um, all about anxiety and depression, which sounds like a weird place to turn, but I had a little bit of a bout of anxiety last month and I was able to work through it. And it's also a story that I didn't really tell about my time at Grace, where I was experiencing depression. So having that all come to light, I think will be incredibly valuable, and it will give me the information and the ammunition through seeing how you folks respond to me telling that story, to me then uh, making a more fully-fledged YouTube video on the topic. So if you want to join in on those live streams, if you want to get your questions answered on those things and workshop these new video ideas with me, Patreon's a place to do it. Um, any other Instagram questions? Not really. It's great to be back. Expect this cadence to go way up now that um, Joe and I are back in town. I will be international probably for the next solo episode. Debatable if Anna's going to let me shoot while I'm on holiday. We'll see. Regardless, there's going to be some This Place Called Episode shot, so look forward to that. Yeah, roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram that is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the, out of the way here. Excuse me. Pardon me.